Welcome everyone. Um, apologies for a slight delay. Um, my name is Anna Gjmovsa and I'm a professor of political science here at Stanford, as well as a fellow at Hoover and the Freeman Spogli Institute. This is the second of two panels on security in the age of liberal democratic erosion. Last week, we explored the political and security challenges posed to liberal democracy, and three critical conclusions emerged about liberal democracy in the United States and elsewhere, facing adversaries who are committed and ideologically motivated, so this is not simply a matter of economic expediency or posturing, the level of cooperation between these adversaries, and third, the way they interact with domestic forces and misinformation and polarization. For those of you who missed it, a recording is available on the Hoover website. Today, we'll explore the responses to these challenges, how we can protect both sovereignty and liberal democracy. And to that end, we've assembled a fantastic group of experts with a remarkable record of research and service. Um, in the order of uh, both alphabetical and in order in which they'll speak. First, Rose Gudda Miller is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Frank and Arthur Payne Distinguished Lecturer at the Freeman Spogli Institute and Center for International Security and Cooperation. She has served as Deputy Secretary General of NATO um, and as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security in the US State Department. H.R. McMaster is the Fouad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He served as a commissioned officer in the US Army for 34 years before retiring as Lieutenant General in June, 2018. He served as the United States National Security Advisor and is the author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Jackie Schneider is a Hoover Fellow and her research focuses on the interaction of technology, national security and political psychology, especially cybersecurity, unmanned technologies and Northeast Asia. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Naval War College Cyber and Innovation Policy Institute and a senior policy advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. And finally, Amy Ziegart is the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science at Stanford. She's also a senior fellow at the Freeman Spockley Institute, the chair of Stanford's Artificial Intelligence and International Security Steering Committee, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. She specializes in US intelligence, emerging technologies, and national security, grant strategy, and global political risk management. Each of the panelists will speak for eight to 10 minutes, and we will then open up for Q&A. If you could please um, use the Q&A window, feel free to ask any questions either now or later on. I will moderate them and sum them up. So please join me in welcoming our experts. And again, we'll start with Secretary Gittimler. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anna. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning and with my co-panelists. It's a great honor to be on this platform, I guess, virtual platform with you this morning. We confronted uh, a great number of challenges and dire threats last week in a very good discussion, which if you haven't had a chance to, to listen to it, I hope you will take some time to do so. It was, well, frankly, a, a hair-raising tour around the threat environment that we face today and, and a very important laydown of, of, of the challenges that we have to confront. What I would like to do this morning is talk about the role of diplomacy diplomacy as part of an equitable toolkit that involves, of course, military tools, the tools of our defense establishment, but also must include the, the tools of our diplomats, of our, our Department of State. And I come to this really by um, thinking that Gates and Clinton, Secretary of Defense Gates and Secretary of State Clinton had it right in April of 2010, when they went not only before the Senate, but also before the public and talked about the way that the State Department and the Department of Defense needed to work together 
to deliver for U.S. foreign and security policy. Gates was especially articulate as Secretary of Defense in arguing against, at that time, what were some dire cuts in the State Department budget. And he argued that full funding of both the national defense and foreign affairs budgets are, and I quote, necessary for our national security and ensuring our continued leadership in the world. They both spoke in very profound and serious ways about the mutual dependency of military and civilian operations. And I think it's especially important at this stage since the State Department was so hollowed out during the previous administration and has really been suffering not only dire uh, budget cuts, but also some, some uh, great uh, personnel losses of some of our most experienced diplomats. So it's an especially important point to emphasize now, and I do note the fact that Secretary of Defense Austin and Secretary of State Lincoln seem to be on this track once again of working closely together to try to fit together, uh, again, in this equitable toolkit, the tools of both diplomacy and defense policy, national security is, is made up of both of those sets of tools. Now, how to apply it best? And there's a big debate about this. I wanted to address it also in my remarks this morning. And I refer you, first of all, to an excellent piece by Lilia Shevsova, my former colleague from the Carnegie Moscow Center, who wrote in the Financial Times on Monday about the kind of Hitchcockian games that Vladimir Putin, the president of the Russian Federation, is playing. And if you're working in the Russia field, you know that there has been quite a debate swirling around about this. Do we just apply uh, the tools, not only of, of military force in deterring against Russia at the present time, but also some of our economic tools like uh, economic sanctions against Russia to try to bring them back to better behavior in the international community, to try to impel them to solve some of the problems they have caused, such as the destabilization of the eastern part of Ukraine, their invasion of Crimea. How do we really get Russia to work now best on the international stage, that's part one, but also in terms of resolving some of these serious problems that the international community of liberal democracies has with the Russian Federation. It's a very serious debate and there's a great deal of difference among the expert community, I must say, with some arguing that we should only be using uh, the tools that punish such as economic sanctions and the tools of deterrence, such as military force. And indeed, as Deputy Secretary General of NATO, I fully supported the efforts that we had underway to deter and defend against a resurgent Russia, not only putting in place the four battle groups in the Baltic states and Poland that are our essential deterrence tripwire in Europe, but also putting in place the means rapidly again to reinforce the NATO allies should there be a point at which Russia escalates crisis into conflict uh, in the European space. So I fully support strong efforts to deter and defend against Russia. But even in NATO, there is a, there is a longstanding policy of also pursuing detente with Russia, first inscribed in the famous Harmel report in the late 1960s. This notion of a dual track approach to Russia is one that I also think must be in endorsed and on that dual track, it is diplomacy that serves to advance the notion of some kind of dialogue and detente with Russia. 
because in this way, as uh, my old colleague from NATO, Jamie Shea, used to say, it is in this way that you can change the status quo without having to revert to the use of force. You can change the status quo with Russia through focused diplomacy without having to uh, to revert to the use of force. And I do very much agree with this point, but it is a difficult one at this moment. And I understand it very well when people are uncomfortable, as I often am with, as Lilia Shevsova put it, the Hitchcockian games that Vladimir Putin and his government sometimes play. But let's talk about what the opportunities are uh, right at the moment. Uh, we have coming up a possible summit between Vladimir Putin and uh, President Biden in the middle of June. They have been talking about it seriously for uh, several weeks now. And I believe it's going to happen, but there are some scheduling difficulties as the European Union and NATO and the G7 are all having uh, summits at the same time in the same uh, physical space that is uh, well, I don't know exactly where they're all going to be, but it will be in Europe, uh, this set of summit meetings. It's an odd mashup when you think of it. Uh, EU, NATO, G7, and oh, by the way, a summit with Vladimir Putin as well. But I do think it is important to, again, advance uh, via diplomatic means some of our critical goals with the Russian Federation. And here I particularly note the necessity of moving forward on further uh, measures to control and constrain our nuclear arsenals. Both presidents have spoke of the importance of the five-year extension of the New START Treaty. I think that that is important indeed because it gives us an opportunity to uh, negotiate a follow-on treaty in a stable and predictable environment. It also, by the way, keeps the Russian nuclear arsenal under limits during a period when the United States is modernizing its nuclear arsenal. And I believe that predictability uh, in the environment for our nuclear modernization is extraordinarily important, probably the most important reason for extending New START for the five years it has been extended until 2026. So in that context, I think the two presidents have uh, a responsibility to talk about the future of further reductions and limitations in nuclear arms, but also to talk about the future of the stability environment because it is so uh, different as it is emerging nowadays. And I think we will hear a lot from our other, our other panelists about this matter, but the new technologies that are already on the scene, such as cyber technology that could affect our ability to command and control our nuclear forces during heaven forbid a crisis that may implicate them I think it is all important that we be talking very seriously with our Russian counterparts about sustaining the reliability of our uh, nuclear command and control, our national command authorities, and ensuring that, uh, that these uh, are not destabilized and attacked in the midst of a crisis. So there are a number of important strategic stability issues that must be confronted, and they are different than in the past. They are not quite the same. Of course, we're worried about the offense-defense relationship and maintaining the viability of our strategic offensive forces as we develop our own limited national missile defenses to defend against North Korea and Iran. But at the same time, we have to look hard at some of these newer issues uh, in the cyber realm, in the artificial intelligence realm, the effect that that is having on our ability to continue 
to uh, deploy and defend and deter. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I look very much forward to our discussion, but I will just emphasize once again in wrapping up the importance of considering diplomacy not as a reward for good behavior, but as a vital tool in a toolkit that includes not only diplomatic uh, possibilities, diplomatic tools, but also the full uh, array of our defense and deterrence tools, as well as other tools such as in the economic realm, economic sanctions. So we must consider this a full spectrum approach and not just limit ourselves on the punitive side of the ledger. Thank you very much for this opportunity and I do look forward to our discussion. Thank you very much. Wonderful, thank you so much for that great presentation. Um, HR, the floor is yours. And uh, hey, I just wanted Tell you what, what a pleasure it is to be here with you uh, at Stanford, but in this at this panel with with great colleagues. And thanks for the tremendous research that you're doing on this so important topic. And and uh, and so what what I like to do is is really tie into what Rose start, started to talk about at, at the very beginning is the very important the importance of of deterrence, deterrence by you know the threat of punitive punitive action later, imposing costs on the Kremlin, for example, beyond those that Vladimir Putin factors in at the beginning of his decision making. But I think even more importantly, deterrence by denial, right? Convincing Russia, other malign actors, you know, the Chinese who are now more and more active in the information space as, as, as well. And, and, um, is that they can't accomplish their objectives, right? Through the means that they are employing. Now, certainly the stakes are highest when you're coping with a, a nuclear power like Russia, and as Rose was alluding to, the very important uh, aspects of deterrence by, uh, by, uh, by, by the threat of, 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 of retaliation, for example, to prevent uh, nuclear war. But I think it's also important for us to consider how to deter the actions that Russia takes that are designed to accomplish their objectives below the threshold of what might elicit a military response. And of course, I'm talking about what what um, I think we ought to think about as uh, think of as a, a a strategy of disruption, disrupt us, <laughs> disinformation, and then denial. What my what my friend Mark Sedwell calls Russian implausible deniability. So so how do we how do we deter both right above the that threshold and below the threshold? Above the threshold, I think we have some work to do because Russia, China, and others studied us carefully, you know, especially after the Gulf War in the '90s, and they didn't try to replicate our defense capabilities precisely, our exquisite capabilities in their stealth, you know, for for example, or or the vast capabilities that we have in space. What they did instead is they thought, okay, what we can do is take apart what they see as our differential advantages. And so they invested in capabilities like offensive cyber, electronic warfare, counter sat satellite uh, capabilities, tiered and layered air defense, and, and drone and swarm drone capabilities. Amy's written extensively about these technologies and their effect on us. I'm anxious to hear her comments. But now we're in, in, in a phase where we have to develop countermeasures to the countermeasures. Part of that is, is what Rose discussed already, which is to ensure the resiliency of our systems. So our adversaries know that they can't really, for example, take away our networked communications capabilities or access to space, that we have resilient, redundant systems that degrade gracefully, hopefully like I am at my age rather than fail catastrophically. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I think that, that uh, there's a lot of investment to be made in defense. But what I'd like to talk about uh, to, in fact, to deter by denial, 
But what I'd like to do is, is talk more about deterrence by denial below the threshold that might elicit a military response. And just quickly uh, recommend four actions that we can all take right, to, to, to help uh, convince uh, Vladimir Putin uh, or, or convince other malign actors that can't accomplish their objectives. The first is we, we need some reform in our information space. And I think this is where the profession of journalism can really step up and undertake a campaign of reform. I think we make ourselves vulnerable, you know, when the, when the business models are such that they encourage the development of, of, of news platforms, for example, such that if you lean one way politically, you watch one cable news station. If you lean another way politically, you watch one of, one of, one of two others. I think it's a shame, you know, that our, that our most prominent newspaper, the New York Times, uh, has been captured by a particular orthodoxy. And I'm thinking, really of Barry Weiss's uh, letter that she wrote when she exited uh, the New York Times. So I, I think the mainstream media, if it can reach Americans across the political spectrum again, such that we more of us can go to common sources of authoritative information reporting, that, that would help. But then, of course, we have the problem of the pseudo media and the, and the propagation of these, these crazy kind of conspiracy theories. Those have to be debunked. And, and they have to be actively countered. And then finally, we have social media, which we're all aware of, and some of the best scholarship, of course, is going on at FSI in this area, is, is how do we check the avarice of these com companies such that they are not driven so much by advertising dollars that people click on more and more extreme content, which is presented to them uh, to be consistent with their predilections and therefore get them to click on, on more, uh, you know, more and more extreme content and drive us drive us apart from each other. So first, information space. Second, our political leaders. We have to demand more from our political leaders. Our political leaders have too often now, too often compromised our principles, compromised what this is about, right? Our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes to score partisan political points. We, ha we have to demand better. We, we could talk obviously a lot more about that. The third thing that I would say though is don't wait for them. <laughs> don't wait for political leaders. I think all of us, wherever we are across our nation, across the free world, should convene our, our fellow, our citizens to have meaningful, thoughtful discussions about the challenges that we face. And we ought to begin those conversations with, hey, what do we agree on first, right? And, and, then, and then decide how we can work together to build a better future. So I just think civility and open discussions about our problems is it, it's a means of defense, right? Because it is the co cohesion of our society uh, that, that 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 Russia is attacking and trying to to polarize us and pit us against each other, reduce our confidence in our common identity, and re reduce our confidence in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And finally, I would say education, right? I mean, the, the kind of demagoguery, the kind of disinformation, uh, it really is effective in large measure because those who are least informed about the challenges we're facing, divisive policy issues, issues over race or you know gun control or immigration, are those who are most prone to that to that to that disinformation. Uh, and I think, in particular, what concerns me more and more these days is the destructive interaction between these sort of reified theories that that teach our young people that they should judge people by their identity category rather than by uh, the content of their of their character and how that interacts with uh you know with, with bigotry and racism of, of various forms so anyway i think there's a lot we can do right right we can work on the information space we can work on we can demand more of our political leaders 
we can do more ourselves through civic action, uh, and then we can focus on education. Thank you. Thank you very much, HR. Um, these are all very long-term goals uh, that we will all share as a society. Um, Jackie. Thank you so much. And I want to say, it's kind of funny. Um, I'm going to talk very specifically about U.S. cyber strategy. Um, but none of us actually talked beforehand about kind of what we were going to be recommending. But I think you'll find there are some themes here <laughs> as we go. So, um, so I very much enjoy being on this panel. So I want to kind of take us back over a decade. Uh, in 2011, the Obama administration penned their first cyber strategy. Now, the international cyber strategy called for an internet that promoted prosperity, security, and openness, all by upholding the principles of free speech and association, privacy, and the freedom of information. It's been you know, a decade since this initial strategy and the threats to these strategic principles have been perhaps uh, more diverse and prolific than the strategy really imagined. Over this decade now, administrations have evolved and expanded its strategic efforts to respond to these threats. But now as we move into a new administration, should we still be focused on these same strategic principles? And what have we learned about what works and what does it when it comes to cyber strategy? So, I just first want to say that I think building a new cyberspace strategy begins with these strategic priorities. And here is where the Obama administration's original focus on an open, free, and secure internet is still incredibly valuable. These characteristics remain noble goals for the U.S., and if achieved, will support a larger Biden foreign policy strategy that, that returns to a focus on dem democratic principles as something that makes the U.S. different from authoritarian states like Russia or China. While we may often compete with rising powers within cyberspace, the goal is not just to win competition, but instead influence behaviors across the international community so that the US can create an international order that supports those, those ideals of democracy, prosperity, and peace. But the new cyberspace strategy is going to have to have even loftier goals than what the Obama administration dreamed of in 2011. And that's because we've learned about the danger not only in not having access to information, but also in accessing invalid information, whether that be campaigns of disinformation or the manipulation of data to degrade trust in our economic or governance systems. The new US cyber strategy will have to seek not only an open, free and secure internet, but will also have to safeguard genuine or valid information. And that's a key addition to strategic priorities. Because if the Biden administration's strategic focus is on restoring economic prosperity and democracy at home, then having a cyberspace that we can rely on for valid or genuine information will be key. So how can we achieve these strategic goals, especially given the proliferation of threats to data and cyberspace? So I think, and I think this is something I agree very much with HR, that the primary line of effort for the Biden cyberspace strategy around which all of their lines of effort should bolster should be resilience. Now, resilience requires not only investing in federal networks and technologies that are more technically resilient, but also in building data users that are more resilient. So tied intimately to resilience are three activities, defense, intelligence, and information sharing. All three of these activities benefit from investments in commercial cybersecurity technology, as well as federal investment in research and development in cybersecurity. Further, the Biden administration should continue to build out the interagency and public-private information sharing that matured over the Trump administration, 
particularly at uh, CISA. Um, in particular, creating ways to quickly share threat information across economic sectors or across critical infrastructure sectors and within the existing agency partnership partnerships is going to reap very large rewards. Now, during the Obama administration, norms and deterrence played a central role in cybersecurity strategy. However, those were kind of largely put aside during the Trump administration in favor um, in cyberspace of new concepts like defend forward and persistent engagement. But these concepts are not really replacements for each other and deterrence and defend forward should live together and coexist. The difficulty has been twofold. First, the US needs to define what it cares about so that it can have credible cross-domain threats of punishment to deter the worst type of cyber attacks. Think the type of cyber attacks that create violence to US citizens or threaten the US nuclear arsenal. Secondly, the US needs to resolve a current contradiction in the strategy between a nation that nominally propagates norms to not attack civilian critical infrastructure and yet does not define the limits of its own cyber actions taking under the Department of Defense's Defend Forward strategy. Here, I think the Biden administration has a real opportunity, not only to ensure the success of its own strategy, but also to build norms of appropriate behavior in cyberspace. The first step, therefore, in solving this kind of US cyber strategy contradiction is to decrease strategic ambiguity about what cyber attacks are serious enough to warrant a violent response from the US. Most cyber attacks will not be able to be credibly deterred, but the US may be able to credibly threaten cross-domain punishment for truly strategic cyber attacks. And for me, I think of those as violent effects against civilian populations or attacks that threaten a state's nuclear control. But I think defining and deterring what the US cares about at the strategic level is only the first necessary step. The US must not just assert these targets off limits for US adversaries, but I really think that they should declare them off limits for the United States. The adoption of a declaratory, declaratory policy of strategic restraint in cyberspace, especially one buttressed by credible threats of retaliation across military options, can help signal credible US restraint and scope appropriate status quo cyber activity, thus kind of shoring up both a strategic threshold of restraint and a lower threshold of status quo cyber activity that occurs without violent retaliation. This is the kind of activity you would see under Defend Forward. Now, all of these actions support norms that the strategy should propagate about what are responsible actions in cyberspace, what is off limits, and where we need to invest in resiliency, defense, and punishment to make cyber exploits less likely to succeed. Diplomacy should focus on what might be largely popular across both allies and adversary nations. For example, agreements binding or non-binding to restrain state-sponsored attacks against critical infrastructure. Meanwhile, the State Department can pursue bilateral or hub-and-spoke agreements that graft off existing arrangements, for example, negotiating agreements to restrain cyber network exploitation or attacks against nuclear arsenals. Finally, the Biden administration will have to carve out of an already tight budget um, investments in crisis response, cyber support to conventional campaigns, and law enforcement. And this will be a very difficult battle. Now, over the last few decades, the U.S. has doubled down on digital technologies, using these digital resources to forge a dominant military, an advanced digital economy, and a highly connected society. But these technologies have also come under threat. 
And the cyber innovations made over the last four years at places like the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense, Defense will not be enough to forge strategic success. The incoming Biden administration should return to the principles and strategic focus of the Obama administration, but also build on the tactical and operational successes the Trump administration may have created by largely ignoring some of the cyber efforts that they facilitated at defense or homeland security. Finally, it's important to highlight that the greatest instability created by data has not been in warfare, but instead in the ways in which our digital dependencies can be manipulated to further schism already existing divides within our societies. The Biden administration will have to take on the very difficult task of regulating information without suppressing freedom of speech. An open and free internet is still important to democracy and a vibrant economy, but the incoming administration will have to do more to safeguard valid information in order to salvage the role of the internet in our society. As with all things cyber, the answer is not in the technology, but instead in humans and building resiliency and trust in the data that undergirds our democracy, our society, and our economy. It's going to be a tall order, but I'm convinced that we are better postured for that challenge today than we have been in the previous decade. Thank you so much, Jackie. That is a very hopeful and optimistic note to end on, um, which makes me hopeful that Amy will continue uh, and make us even more hopeful and optimistic. Uh, on, I'm really sorry to disappoint you. I'm going to get more depressing before trying to end on a bit of an optimistic note. Let me share my screen. Thank you so much. It is really an honor not only to be with my colleagues here today, but to be the sort of part two to the workshop that happened last week. Uh, if you haven't seen last week's workshop, I highly commend it. But I have to say, Anna, that my first um, instinct in terms of thinking about how to respond to the list of horrors that Liz Economy and Mike McFall and Abbas Milani and Kate Starbird laid out last week was to curl up in a fetal position and recommend we all eat more chocolate. But I will try to do a little bit uh, better than that. Um, what I want to try to do is to take a step back and ask, what does the threat landscape look like? Have we seen this movie before? And what's different about the foreign policy threats in general as a, as a precursor to them? What do we recommend as we move forward? Um, we know, right, that the threat landscape today, in addition to Russia, China, Iran, and disinformation and polarization in our own country, we know that threat landscape is complex, more complex than at any moment uh, in history. It's more uncertain, we feel the anxiety of it, and critically, it's moving at a velocity that is unprecedented as well. Uh, and so what is different about this moment isn't so much the list of the threats that we're confronting, it's the driver of those threats. And that critical driver is a convergence of emerging technologies. That's what differentiates this moment from all previous moments. Never before have we stood at the convergence of so many game-changing technologies that are transforming economics, that are transforming domestic politics, how civil society relates inside countries, and that are transforming geopolitics across states. And I just want to tick through just a few. We, we take for granted internet connectivity today. We think about the dramatic transformations uh, generated by connectivity. More than half the world is online today. More people have cell phones than running water in the world. And that connectivity is not just opening new opportunities for business, but of course it's been supercharging politics, ranging from the Arab Spring to the Hong Kong umbrella movement, 
to repressive crackdowns by the Chinese and other authoritarian regimes using surveillance technology, to ISIS recruiting online, uh, to Russia's information warfare. That's just connectivity. We have artificial intelligence. Some estimates are that AI could eliminate 40% of jobs worldwide in the next 15 to 25 years. And we know AI is poised to change not only economics, but the way that wars are fought. Already uh, automating everything from logistics to cyber to unmanned systems that can sense an attack faster than humans can. And then there's quantum uh, computing, which could unlock encrypted data that we currently uh, take for granted that is protected, making cybersecurity even more problematic and synthetic biology with uh, the potential to create revolutionary advances in medicine and food, but also new weapons of war and new capabilities for data storage. Lots and lots of technologies at this one moment. What does it all mean? It means it's a technological moment of reckoning to deal with international security challenges. We have to harness both the insight and the power of these emerging technologies in order to advance our interests as well as our values. And it's a race, it's an adaptation race. The nation that uh, adapts to this technological world the fastest is going to secure longer term advantage. So how do we do that? Well, adaptation to this new technological moment is a lot harder than it may even appear. And as I put on my slide, you can't just sprinkle in some new technology and stir. Uh, we actually have to, understand that emerging technologies in this moment are creating fundamentally different dynamics affecting conflict and cooperation. And our old ideas and our old institutions uh, and our old tools will not be enough uh, to get the job done. So let me just give a little bit of a, a deeper dive into cyber to explain a little bit more what I mean. So cyber is not just a new vector or a new domain like uh, battling in the air or in the, on the seas or on ground. Cyber has different dynamics and different fundamentals. Uh, until this moment, for all of human history, two things protected uh, states from their competitors and their adversaries, power and geography. And that is no longer true today. In cyberspace, for the first time, those who are most powerful are inherently the most vulnerable because we're so digitally connected. This is the conundrum the United States now confronts, where simultaneously the most powerful state in cyberspace and the most vulnerable state in cyberspace. The same is true for liberal democracies. What has been a source of our strength, our openness, right, our freedom of speech is now an inherent vulnerability for disinformation and polarization by foreign and domestic adversaries alike. We've never confronted this kind of landscape before with these dynamics. In cyberspace, of course, geography doesn't protect us either. The United States doesn't have two oceans uh, to buffer us from the bad neighborhoods of the Middle East or Europe. We're all in bad neighborhoods in cyberspace uh, and there's not a lot we can do about it. Uh, we have to assume, uh, as I think Jackie alluded to, that the bad guys are already inside the house in cyberspace. And that key word that she talked about and HR talked about too, resilience is one of the critical uh, areas that we need to invest in. 
Uh, I'm going to disagree, I think, a little bit with my colleagues and say I'm not a big fan of deterrence in cyberspace. I applaud the effort to think through how it could work, but it doesn't work very well. And I think we can get into why that is. Um, and perhaps most important, war doesn't look like war anymore in cyberspace. We see uh, relentless, seemingly small attacks in cyberspace add up to major strategic effects and advantage. Uh, why has China risen so fast? Well, in large part because it's stolen American intellectual property, called by FBI Director Chris Ray the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Small attacks add up. Same thing with Russia's information uh, warfare and its interference in the last two presidential elections interfering directly in the fabric of American democracy with an estimated cost of something that is less than the price of one F-35 airplane in the US defense arsenal. This is a different world with different dynamics and we have to think differently about it. So what does that mean in terms of what we need to do? I think we have, I, there are many things we need to do, and I agree with just about everything that my colleagues have said. I'm just going to focus on three. Not so much, I should have said how to do it rather than what to do. This is, so my recommendations are about the how, not the what. First, we have to get our cyber act together. I think Jackie can, can talk more about that. But suffice it to say, we're nowhere near where we need to be. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, then at least take a look at this. And I couldn't even put nearly, you know, a small percentage of the cyber attacks that we should be learning from. A few years ago, it was fair to say that cybersecurity risks were a failure of imagination. We couldn't imagine what a major cyber attack would look like that would concern us at a national level. That's not true anymore. Now it's a risk is stemming from implementation failures, not imagination failures. And so we're behind the eight ball when it comes to implementing uh, what we need to. Colonial pipeline, for example, you know, auto manufacturers have to make seat belts for people riding in cars, but Colonial Pipeline and others that provide critical services to our nation didn't have to have basic cyber protections like multi-factor authentication. That's gotta change. Uh, the second priority is about intelligence, and there is my shameless self-promotion for my book. If you want a deeper dive on, on what I think about intelligence, uh, it's uh, coming out in, in a few months. Uh, let me just say that you, you, know, you can't defeat threats and seize opportunities if you don't see them coming. Intelligence is a critical factor in how we think about dealing with all the threats on our threat landscape. Now, I, I'm not saying that intelligence is always perfect. We certainly know it isn't, but it beats the three best alternatives, which are opinion, guesswork, and gut feel, right? We have to have uh, a reformed intelligence community that understands this threat landscape and utilizes emerging technologies faster than our competitors and adversaries do. Our analysts today in the intelligence community are drowning in data. They need AI and other tools to help them make sense of the world beyond. Our intelligence agencies today are steeped in gathering and access, accessing secret information when increasingly the name of the game for insight is openly available information on the internet in commercial satellite imagery and other uh, uh, products. 
Our community today is focused on producing products for people with clearances. But we know that key decision makers in today's threat landscape are voters and tech leaders, decision makers outside of government agencies who don't hold security clearances, but who are critical for advancing our values and protecting our interests. That's a radical transformation for our intelligence agencies to think about how they can support decision makers that are not the usual suspects in Washington. And last, we have to challenge our old thinking. Many bad ideas were once good, designed for a world that no longer exists. And I may um, lose my arm wrestling battle with H.R. McMaster on this, but I think deterrence is one of those ideas that has more limited applicability today than it has had in the past. We hear a lot about deterrence. Deterrence below the threshold of war has not worked in cyberspace. I'm very pessimistic that it can. Uh, I'd like to think uh, that it can, but I think we need to challenge ourselves to develop new ideas, not just new tools uh, and new technologies uh, for this moment. I'm gonna try to end on an optimistic note. It's hard for me to do. You'll see all the scary pictures on the right side of my slide, but two points of optimism, which is that we are not too late, right? I think there's a sense that the authoritarians have this advantage and that advantage is enduring. I don't think that's true. I think this convergence of emerging technologies is a present at the creation moment. We have an opportunity to catch up, to regain and sustain advantage. And, uh, and that moment has not passed. That window of opportunity is not passed, but it is fleeting. The second reason I'm optimistic is that if I have to think about one overarching magic superpower that the United States has, it's our capacity for innovation. We focus until now on our capacity to innovate in tech, but we have historically been very good at innovating in tools and organizations and ideas as well, whether it's containment uh, strategy in the Cold War uh, or uh, new institutions upholding the liberal international order. We need to turn that innovation effort, not just to the emerging technologies that are, that are generally being developed in the United States and then throughout the world, we need to turn it toward tools, organizations, and ideas as well. So I did my best to not depress everybody into eating more chocolate. I'm going to stop there. I still have a stash of chocolate just in case. Um, thank you so much, Amy, and thank you to all the panelists. Um, we have a whole bunch of questions that are coming up, and let me try and group some of them. I think one of the so first and foremost ones was by Steve Krasner, who asked, what about force? Ultimately, isn't force the backstop to either diplomacy or the use of technology or anything else? So, you know, good old fashioned military force. And so I'm wondering if the panelists could each respond in turn about what they view the role of basically um, military force in uh, serving as a backstop to all these other proposals. I think absolutely. And I think just in broadly, that if we want to talk about how to respond to, you know, to cyber attacks to place our vital interests at risk, Obviously, the, the response has to be beyond cyberspace, right? There might, there might be a, a cyber response to it, but, but as we have actually, as we have done many times, the key is to, is to respond you know, with all elements of national power. Uh, and if it is a severe enough attack and, and if the president decides to use military force uh, under, you know, under his Article II authorities or Congress authorizes force, uh, then, then that is an important element of, of the response to that threat. And I know at the tactical level, this is even early in 2000, 
Now, early for in, in terms of uh, the the use the integration of cyber into military operations, 2005 to 2006 when we operated in Iraq, a, a way uh, to deal with a, a an enemy an Al Qaeda in Iraq cyber cell, uh, for us was to drop a 500 pound bomb on them. Well, which we did. So I th I think uh, I mean certainly in the in circumstances in which military force is authorized. Uh, against an enemy that's actively operating against you at the tactical level. Uh, we've done that routinely since that point on uh, uh, in the fight against ISIS as well. So I, I think uh, the short answer, Anna, is yes. Rose, would you, what's your stand? If I could just yeah, take on, Steve, thank you very much for that question, Steve. I noted it uh, in the Q&A earlier. I really wanted to stress uh, this notion of a toolkit and that there's the spectrum of capabilities that the United States has available. Um, Amy and Jackie have also talked about the, the spectrum of capabilities for trying to steer and, and make best use of uh, the, the cyber tools that are now available to us, which I absolutely agree with as well. But I just, uh, in my own remarks, wanted to say that, of course, the use of force is there and always available to the United States. We would not have built up our enormous military capacity if that were not the case, but it must work hand in hand with diplomacy and that diplomacy shouldn't be shelved or as I was saying, somehow considered to be a reward for good behavior. It's one of the essential tools we have available for advancing our national security. But of course, our ability to uh, make use of military force always must be present as well. Um, Jackie, Amy? What, how do you see the use of force in combination or as a backstop? Yeah, I think, you know, when you're, when you're talking about um, the use of force as a complement, for example, to diplomacy, you know, get those two elements, right? The, the capability, do we have the capability to use, to best our opponents? And then do, can we credibly use it? And I think one of the challenges that the United States has had is that we have an extraordinarily capable military that for most of the threats that I mean, HR was speaking about, we don't have credibility about being able to use it, right? So what is the signal that states see and respond to? The movement of an aircraft carrier, right? But then the translation of the movement of the aircraft carrier and FONOPS or um, freedom of navigation operations, and then the actual willingness to use those aircraft to bomb uh, some sort of sovereign territory, there's real asymmetry here. Um, and that's been the real challenge for threats like cyberspace. I mean, I've done some experimental work trying to look at where the American public would support retaliation to cyber operations. And we find that, <laughs> you know, even at very, very large facts, the American public is generally not supportive of responses to cyber attacks that are not, you know, in the cyber domain. So there's a real kind of credibility gap when it comes to the vast majority of cyber activity. And so I think you have to develop um, a force that has some sort of asymmetric uh, arrows in its quiver um, so that it can have both a capable force, but also a credibility of responses. And some of the emerging work on cyberspace actually suggests that states are thinking more about cyber operations as this kind of um, tool to increase the bargaining space between states in crisis, coercion, and competition. And then I'll, I'll just highlight Amy's work really quickly and then hand over to her. But I think Amy's work on the persistence of unmanned systems and how that creates a credibility that allows for some sort of coercion or deterrence is actually really useful. Sorry, I'll just switch over to Amy. 
I didn't even pay Jackie for that lead in. Um, so I, so this gets to the how, right? So I agree, of course, force is always going to be a critical, a critical tool uh, in our toolkit. And the question is, how can we use it given emerging technologies? So my research on unmanned systems, for example, and I surveyed 200 plus foreign military officers about what makes threats credible to them and what they, and I gave them different scenarios. One of the things that we found was that um, the certainty of punishment is often more compelling than the severity of punishment. So you think about when, you know, do you stop at red lights, right? If there's a, if there's a camera on the red light, you're more likely to, to, to not run through the yellow because you're certain you're gonna get punished. Uh, and research has shown that if you increase the severity of the punishment with more tickets, et cetera, it doesn't work as well. So what unmanned systems can do is increase the certainty of punishment with loiter time and persistent strike, right, in the same platforms rather than the severity of punishment. So it's a new mechanism for coercion that is actually lower cost in terms of finance, lower cost in terms of risk of the warfighter, and potentially just as or more effective. So I think there's some interesting capabilities with unmanned systems, not to kill, but to coerce effectively, to get outcomes short of resorting to violence. I just wanna add one other point, which is I think force will always be important, but we have unprecedented dependencies on economics today that affect our supply chains for our systems and affect our relations between states. So the Cold War, the US and the Soviet Union, we had a world of a trading world without them and a military competition with them. Now those two worlds are combined. And so we need actually to think much more holistically about economic tools of statecraft as well as diplomacy and the use of force. There's also you know, a lot of interest in the Q&A in what we've already talked about in many ways, which is the deterrence in cyberspace deathmatch between Amy and HR. So I'd like to go in reverse alphabetical order and ask Amy to sort of tell us more about why she thinks deterrence in cyberspace doesn't work, HR might work. And I'd love to hear from Jackie and, and Rose about how deterrence and diplomacy and deterrence and this building of resilience uh, can all interact. So why don't we go in reverse order this time, Amy? You know, you go reverse alphabetical order for the hard question. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, so. And I suspect that HR and I agree on more than we disagree. I'm a deterrence skeptic in cyberspace because I think deterrence can be very useful, but in very limited circumstances. So if we think about in physical space, deterrence during the Cold War kept the Cold War cold, but it didn't stop the Soviets from invading Afghanistan. It didn't stop them from invading Czechoslovakia. It didn't stop them from invading Hungary. It didn't stop them from doing a whole bunch of things that we would have preferred they not do. So it's not, it's not useful in every situation. So in cyberspace, I think there are three reasons why I'm a deterrent skeptic. Number one, you have to attribute quickly, right? For deterrence to be really effective. Attribution is sometimes fast, but not always fast. And the more, uh, and so it's attribution's gotten easier, but it's still a question of how quickly can you attribute something? How quickly can you detect a breach, right? So solar winds was months before we even knew it had happened. So attribution is hard. You have to specify what behavior you won't tolerate. We're not very good at doing that in cyberspace. We haven't been able to do it yet. And I think it's problematic. And third, and perhaps most importantly, you have to be able to credibly uh, communicate before something bad happens, what's going to happen if, if your adversary does something. But with cyber weapons, as Jackie knows better than I do, 
If you use it, you lose it. You show what you have, your adversary can turn that against you. So you can't do the equivalent of an above ground nuclear test of a cyber weapon to show you're gonna be sorry if you take this step because we're going to uh, retaliate against you. You can't do that or you lose the capability. That's different in cyberspace. So I'm naturally just much more skeptical that deterrence will work. And now and now I'm, I'm fearful and I'm gonna turn it over to HR to tell me why I'm wrong. Well, no, I mean, I think what you said up, up front is, is that exactly right. The terrorist was never a foolproof theory, right? <laughs> right? And, uh, and I think what's important to recognize is that uh, you'll never know what you deterred, probably. Uh, but, but I think that at the very high end of the threat spectrum that Rose was talking about at the beginning, uh, we made clear in the nuclear posture review that we would consider uh, a catastrophic uh, you know, attack on our communications networks as potentially a precursor to a, an enemy first strike, uh, nuclear strike. And therefore, uh, you know, there, that, of course, then raised the possibility uh, that we would have to respond with, you know, with, the, you know, the, with the unthinkable, right? The most destructive weapons on Earth. Now, the reason we put that in the nuclear posture review was to deter a, a massive attack on our communications infrastructure that could be a precursor to a first strike nuclear strike against us, right? So, so I, I think that that's one end of the spectrum of deterrence. But the other is, as you know, as a, as a you know, as, as you know, one of the foremost scholars of, on, of what's happening in this space, is that we are active every day, you know, against uh, against adversary capabilities, and we take them down every day. You know, and and uh, and I think that in and of itself is a bit of a deterrent because if the cyber actor values really the tools that they develop for you know for criminal capabilities or for attacks on our infrastructure or for industrial espionage, uh, they, they see those capabilities go away, and and oftentimes those takedowns, as you know, aren't going aren't limited just to that specific tool that they developed. Uh, but can are designed to impede their whole system and their ability to recover uh, and to develop new tools. We, so we do use those tools every single day. Now, once we use them, we develop new ones, and, and usually, you know, that happens within a couple of days. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's so fast, right? I mean, anything that you expose uh, in cyberspace, and I'm not talking this. This is all open source stuff, obviously. You know, everything you expose, it, it typically, you know, is, is only valid for another 72 hours, right? Uh, and, and that capability. So I, I think, you know, I, I think that it's already it's already working in terms of uh, of deterrence by by really uh, uh, this is, um, I guess what I'm discussing is kind of a mixture between, you know, between uh, preemptive action, um, preventive action. Uh, which are taking down tools before that they're they're used, so to not deny an adversary that capability, uh, and then also I think the other aspect of deterrence by denial that can be applied to much of our discussion uh, is that just just making our systems more resilient is is an effort to deter as well. So uh, I think we've seen that in the financial sector to a certain extent. I think if we hadn't made the adjustments that you've written about, Amy, and that Jackie's written about uh, after the 2007 and the 2013 attacks by the Iranians. Uh, our, our financial sector would have come under, you know, continuous uh, attacks of that nature since then. I think what Estonia has done, uh, for example, uh, in, in in developing kind of a cyber hardened state, you know, I think is, is is another example of of, uh, of really, you know, a range of actions that are difficult to scale up, but I think are examples of effective deterrence by denial. So, 
Um, I think I think we're just I think we're agreeing, but just using the, the term deterrence differently. So this is the first arm wrestling match with two winners. Um, Jackie, you know this mentioned HR just mentioned resilience. How does you know you had spoken about that as well? So how does you know building more resilient networks help deterrence? Yeah, and you know, I want to say like deterrence, um, one of the big things that, that separates deterrence from other verbs that we use in international policy is that deterrence is about changing behaviors. So I'm, I want to do something, right? But I'm not going to do it because your actions make me think the cost is too high. So it's all about changing behaviors. And one of the fundamental kind of empirical puzzles about cyberspace has been how difficult it is to get people to react or change or respond to cyber threats. Whether that's you know investment in you know cybersecurity, your willingness to change your password and do basic cyber hygiene, but for states also, you know what we found is that both if you look at kind of large end data sets or I do my my own works experiments and war gamings, you find that cyber operations very rarely lead to some sort of kind of violent or even like significantly escalatory response. I mean that's the puzzle. So all these things that make cyberspace very difficult to um that make people not respond to it make it great for escalation right and um, but it also makes deterrence very very difficult because it doesn't seem to affect people's behaviors at all and um, now this deterrence by denial um i think there's there is a lot of kind of melding about deterrence and denial resilience and defense and actually some great work by erica borgard that separates kind of what is deterrence and denial versus defense i don't know it might be strictly academic but i think in general this idea that the united states can be resilient whether that's in network structures its economy or its society it keeps states from taking initial first strikes because there is a perception that there will be some sort of ability to survive that first strike and exert punishment afterwards, right? And this is something that we saw a lot in the debate about second strike and nuclear weapons. So for the US, I think it, it involves kind of resilience at the human level, being able to deal with data mismanagement and not being able to access data. Um, but it's also kind of some big decisions that we need to make about the way we centralize data. Um, Amy works a lot on artificial intelligence and sometimes the choices that we make to create um, artificially intelligence enabled systems, the centralization of data and big database farms um, actually creates like real um, problems for resiliency. And so, you know, some of these are technical solutions and some are really just getting people to be able to, as HR said earlier, gracefully degrade so that when we don't have access to our data, it's not that we simply cannot operate, but that we just operate at less, less than optimal performance. And you know, Rose, the question for you, if, you know, if, if Jackie says that you know, deterrence is about changing the behavior of other actors, um, how does diplomacy figure in here? How can you, know, with absent the use of military force or threats, how can diplomacy change the behavior of other actors? Yes, that's a great question. I was going to reflect for a moment uh, on my experience as Deputy Secretary General of NATO, but it's any big institution nowadays is suffering cyber attacks on a daily basis. So it's a steady state. And in that context, Jackie's uh, comments about resilience are very good, that it is, it is human resilience as well as institutional resilience. And, and there's just a certain expectation at NATO that this is the reality of the situation and we have to deal with it on a day in day out basis by ensuring we have the best possible uh, cyber hygiene, we have the best possible approach to cybersecurity in the NATO networks, 
This is day in, day out in peacetime. But I think also there is a role here for, and I call it not so much deterrence, maybe it's the same thing, but denying them impunity in cyberspace. And there is a diplomatic aspect to that, to convey this message. That is, we've got your number. We're fixing whatever problem you cause us. Cut it out or there will be consequences. And I do think we need to do that a little bit better than we have done in the past. There have been some instances of that. I've welcomed, for example, the approach on cyber wins that the Biden administration took. I thought that was a very solid, tough message to Putin. You know, it made uh, the Russian Federation uh, leadership uh, react negatively, and maybe they won't cut it out. But I think this notion of denying them impunity and being very clear in messaging that is an important uh, factor, and uh, it, it blends in with both the human and the institutional uh, resilience that we've been talking about. Okay, I'm going to, um, there's another question that's been coming up. We've talked now quite a bit about security, about deterrence, about resilience. We haven't talked so much about the liberal democracy side of things. Um, and HR spoke quite directly to that by calling for us to basically hold journalists, politicians, voters, and our educational system much more accountable for the protection of liberal democracy. Um, and Amy had also mentioned how liberal democracies and open societies in general are both more innovative and more vulnerable. So I'm wondering if each of you could speak a bit about sort of, you know, how we protect liberal democracy itself. And in order to achieve the goals that HR is talking about, what are some of the tools, um, some of the toolkits that you're familiar with that would help us to basically protect liberal democracy and achieve these goals of greater accountability, greater innovation, greater transparency? Uh, why don't we start uh, in alphabetical order this time with Rose first. Okay, this time, Amy, I got stuck with the tough questions. So, but I take seriously the various remarks in the Q&A about, you know, well, what does this all mean for democracy? You know, how does this help us build, rebuild and defend democracy where, where it needs to uh, happen? And so uh, I agree, we need to take the discussion in that, in that direction. Again, I'm going to refer back uh, to my experience at NATO uh, to offer up an example that here too, I think we can take on uh, we can take on some of these new threats full force, and uh, really it gets down to HR's point about about really asking our uh, media outlets and our information organizations to take more responsibility. And the example I'm going to raise for you is uh, dealing with the constant misinformation, disinformation attacks on our battle groups in the three Baltic states and in Poland. Some of you may remember. Uh, a couple of years ago, the so-called Lisa story in Germany, where uh, the uh, you know the misinformation began to swirl around that uh, an Islamic individual had uh, attacked a Russian German citizen uh, and raped her. She was a young teenager. Well, it turned out after creating a lot of difficulty and um, many counter you know counteractions against the uh, population. Islamic population in Germany, that this was a complete planted story and misinformation. So lo and behold, a short time later, there was a story that emerged in Lithuania about a German soldier in the battle group there who had raped a young Lithuanian girl. Well, very quickly, again, it's this business that the Lithuanian government had the number of the Russian Federation very quickly, and they turned to their media establishment and said, help us to debunk this story. 
And within a very short time, the story had been debunked and it did not lead to the desired effect, which I assume the Russian Federation had, and that was to stir up opposition to the German-led battle group in Lithuania. Of course, there's a long history there, which, uh, which the Russians were trying to, to use to stir up trouble. But here's an example where there was a very close alliance between uh, a government and a media establishment to try to debunk some of this misinformation. And I hope we can do more of it. I completely agree with HR on this. It is time for our media establishment to, to step up and begin to take some additional responsibility for, for debunking some of this misinformation. To, I'll just add one thing to what I, what I said earlier. Um, you know, it made me think of a, of a Clinton quotation, and, and I mean George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. Who said if you don't if you don't like the effect don't produce the cause, and and uh, and and I think that part of the cause for us is our diminished, you know, our, our diminished confidence uh, in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes, and I think a powerful tool that our that our enemies use that, that I think any, you know, any any uh, entity that is trying to push kind of a destructive agenda, they they abuse history. And so I, I think as a historian, I guess, maybe that part of the answer is history and how we teach history. And I believe that many of our young people today in secondary education and sadly in the academy, I think this, this problem began in the academy, are subjected to a, what I would call a curriculum of self-loathing, or at least a mild form of self-loathing, in which we're taught, our, 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 our students are often taught that we are the problem in the world, right? And, and this is sort of consistent with the new left interpretation of history, and I'm going to oversimplify here, but the idea that all of the ills of the world prior to 1945 were due to colonialism and all the ills of the world after 1945 were due to capitalist and imperialism. And I think that's melding together these days with the so-called realist school that tends to assume that, that what we decide to do, uh, disengage from the world is what they would like us to do. Uh, is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. Again, what they have in similar uh, in, in common, the new left interpretation and the so-called realist school of retrenchers, uh, is their belief that our disengagement from complex competitions abroad would be an unmitigated good. Why? Because we're the problem. Now, oftentimes these these theories uh, and approaches, um, you know, really uh, then are, are are viewed as advocating a much more modest policy. But they're actually profoundly arrogant because they don't acknowledge that others have agency and influence and authorship over the future, including our, our adversaries, our, our rivals, and, and our enemies. I mean, I think the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin act mainly on their own volition uh, and have aspirations beyond those that are in reaction to what we do, right? So, so I think that we really need to, uh, an emphasis on education and also maybe a focus as well on uh, on maybe restoring confidence in our republic, right? And and uh, and the great promise of America, uh, recognition of of the gifts uh, enshrined in, in our in our Declaration of Independence and our Bill of Rights, uh, but not to teach a contrived happy view of history, right? To to obviously point out uh, that that we've often not lived up to those principles, uh, and 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 that our republic is a is a, is a constant work in progress that that requires, as our founders knew it would, constant nurturing. So we should be disappointed, you know, that it took almost 100 years 
to remove the blight of, of slavery, but we should celebrate, right? That we did emancipate 4 million of our fellow Americans in our most destructive war in history. We can be disappointed, you know, in, in, in the failure of reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan and separate but equal, but we should celebrate the achievements of, of the civil rights movement and the dismantlement of at least de jure segregation and inequality of opportunity while recognizing de facto uh, segregation and, and, and inequality of opportunity uh, exist and unequal treatment under the law and so forth. But that just means we have more work to do, right? But I think, I think this, uh, you know, this narrative these days uh, associated uh, with, you know, the, the abuse of history such that uh, our children are taught that the American Revolution by some people, um, you know, was, was fought to preserve slavery rather than uh, to, to found a nation on principles that ultimately made uh, that horrible institution uh, incompatible uh, with, uh, with, uh, with our founding documents and, and, and with the society that, 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 that our founders envisioned. So I, anyway, I think that I think there's really two aspects to this. Uh, one is uh, educating ourselves more, our uh, people more about America's role in the world. And, and my, my belief that, we, of course, we've made mistakes. I wrote a book about that, <laughs> about how why Vietnam became an American war. Um, but America has been a force for good in the world and remains a force for good in the world. And, and, to, and to make maybe make a deliberate effort to restore our confidence. I mean, Richard Rorty said that national pride is to nations as self-respect is to individuals, uh, an essential agree- ingredient for self-improvement. So um, I think this is an aspect of, of restoring our, 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 the strength of our democracy uh, that, that is oftentimes maybe not, not, doesn't enter into a conversation enough. Thank you, HR. Jackie, protecting liberal democracy? Yeah, this is, I think is actually the hardest question. Um, I, I, I've largely punted um, in my initial statements. Um, so I'm gonna talk, like, I'll just take a, a tiny bite, a tiny nibble off this. Cause I think the, I mean, the problem is, you know, invariably kind of societal and about um, education and repairing the schisms in our society. But part of that is because the way that we propagate information today magnifies the schisms. And I think that if you go back and you look at the relationship between um, big technology, social media companies and the ways in which we interact, um, and then kind of what regulation exists or does not exist, um, there is some opportunity for growth here. Um, And I actually think if you look back at the end of the Obama administration, the tech companies were really wondering like, hey, I think actually maybe we do need some regulation. We don't really understand what our responsibility is for freedom of speech, but we also don't want to censure. And it's actually, you know, it's an extraordinarily difficult question. And at the time there were some feelers that were being made with the Obama administration to be like, hey, can you guys, you know, regulate us all? Can we, you know, we don't want it to come from us, but maybe it could come from you guys. And then we, in the last four years under the Trump administration, I think what you saw was a bunch of tech experimentation and some success and some failure. And now I think we're at a point where we've seen experimentation about kind of how the tech companies should be responsible with information. Um, And now maybe this is an opportunity for us to think about like, what is good regulation? How do we safeguard and protect valid and genuine information? Um, And I think there's probably, this is probably a good opportunity and a time for the federal government to work with a a bit of a light hand, but to work with the tech companies to to try and solve that problem. 
Um, Amy, the final stirring optimistic words about how we protect our liberal democracy belong to you. So I agree with Jackie, this is the toughest question. And so my answer is there, I have some thoughts about from the head and some thoughts from the heart. From the head, I think we need to think differently about what kind of expertise we need, whether it's helping tech companies or helping cyber command. The assumption from the founding of our country has been that the answer to harmful speech is more speech. But we know empirically from psychological research that that is not true anymore. That falsehoods when they're repeated frequently by multiple sources are believed. And so that is exactly the online environment in which we find ourselves. So we need to really question that cornerstone, which is essentially legal analysis based on our historical experience and harness more the insights of empirical work in psychology about how people actually process information, how people are actually susceptible to being uh, believing in conspiracy theories and developing solutions that address those empirical realities. We don't do enough about that. If you look at the Facebook oversight board, it's chock full of lawyers. I don't see a lot of people who are experts in psychology and decision-making theory. We need the right expertise to get to the right solution. So that's my head answer. From the heart, we need to do a better job at building bridges across communities that may not trust or know each other. And HR has been part of this effort at Hoover. We have uh, the National Security Affairs Fellows Program. We bring representatives from all the military services in the State Department for a year. And one of the programs that we started was uh, undergraduate mentorship. So we have 25 to 30 students a year. And the requirement for those students is that they have no experience or exposure with the US government before. This is not preaching to the converted. This is bringing communities together that don't know each other, may not trust each other, may not even like each other, but have a shared commitment to learn from each other. We need to do a lot more of that. It's not what someone else can do. It's what can we do ourselves to reach across and build bridges with people that we may not know or may not agree with. Thank you so much. And I think that's the perfect note to end on because I certainly have learned a lot, um, as I'm sure our audience members have as well. Thank you to the panelists for sharing their time, wisdom, and expertise. Um, thank you to the audience for their questions and their participation. And I hope to see you at other Hoover events in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you.